I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 6. John 6.35 is kind of going to be our theme verse for this fall semester. We, uh, we got an old house, and uh, in fact, our, our kitchen actually, there, our house originally was two rooms, built about uh, 1900. And so the kitchen's been redone several years, uh, several times, and we had to do it 10 years ago. And, we, and when we did, the, Mary had a new backsplash, and she had a friend who's an artist, and uh, behind the burners of the oven, up on the backsplash, is uh, John 6.35. And that's kind of our key uh, text as we uh, kick off this fall study. Uh, in John 6.35... Jesus made really a, uh, uh, he made a statement that encompasses uh, all of life, uh, your life and my life. And what he said was this, he said that he was the bread of life. Interesting. He calls himself the bread of life and, uh, listen to this, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Now, that's interesting because in order to get through life, there are certain essentials. There are, there are the basics. There are the fundamentals. And in order to get through life, there is nothing more essential. There is nothing more critical. There is nothing more fundamental than food and water. And Jesus says right out of the blocks that he is the food and he is the water of life, of all of life. What, what does this say? I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. Um, the context of John 6 it begins with uh, a group of people in need of food uh, and, and it's somewhat of a crisis situation. If you look at John 6 and you just kind of scan the opening verses, you'll see that it's the account of the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, in verse 5, it says, Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? Now, this is interesting. Uh, he asked Philip, so where are we going to feed all these people? And th now, why did he say that? Now, look at verse 6. This he was saying to him to test him. For he himself knew what he was intending to do. This is what the Lord does with us. We come to know him, we follow him, we give him our lives, and now we're just kind of, okay, Lord, here we go, and I'm trying to navigate through life and wherever I am in life, and I'm asking, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. I'm following you. And what happens is, as we go through life, and this was what happens to men, uh, he has called us to be leaders, he's called us to be leaders of our home. Uh, some of us have never been leaders before. Our, our fathers weren't leaders, our grandfathers weren't leaders. Uh, th there has not been... Uh, leadership in our family spirit chief for generations well the Lord has grabbed you and he's going to put a new link in the generational chain and here you go and here's what happens is as we, as we start walking with Christ after he calls us and he called these apostles he called them out of what they were doing and they're following him and what he says to him hey uh, Philip uh, how are we going to feed these people and there are times, and well, 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 I don't know, this was kind of a crisis. I, I have no idea how we're going to do this. He did this in order to test him. He will do that with you, and he will do that with me. As we walk with him, from time to time, he will bring circumstances into our lives that he knows about way in advance. He knows what he's going to do in the circumstance. But what he's going to do is he's going to test us, and he's going to grow us, and he's going to teach us a concept, and he's going to teach us a lesson. This is what's happening here. Uh, well, they don't know what they're going to do. you got 5,000 people. He answers them in verse 7. Uh, we've got 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew Simon Peter, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. 
but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, have the people sit down. You know the story. Everybody sat down. You got about 5,000. Jesus took the loaves, having given thanks. He distributed to those who were seated. Likewise, also of the fish, as much as they wanted. Now, this is really kind of wild. Uh, everyone's seated, and he starts taking the bread and piecing it out and takes the fish and starts piecing it out. And, um, and then what happens? Uh, verse 11, Jesus took the loaves, having given thanks, distributed to those who were seated. Likewise, also the fish, as much as they wanted. It was not the kind of thing, when, when my uh, daughter Rachel got married uh, to court, um, we knew how many people were coming and we had a dinner afterwards. And what happened is, it was really kind of interesting, that uh, we had more people show up than uh, responded. And while they're eating dinner, our family and Court's family are taking pictures and we sat down to eat, and there was no food. And I'm still a little hacked off, <laughs> quite frankly. It, it, it really is what happened, and apparently, you know, some younger people that were excited and didn't, they just showed up. Well, that's, that's fine. Uh, I'm still tracking them down, but uh, no, it's what happened, and we didn't get any food. That didn't happen here. It didn't happen here. What happened is, they had these, you got these loaves, you got these fishes, and Jesus starts doing what Jesus does, and they're going back for seconds. Hey, we got more. Anybody want more? Any, uh, come on. And, and what happened, which is kind of insane because of what they started out with. But see, it's really not insane when you realize who it is that's in charge. Verse 13, so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those. They didn't have enough in the first place to feed 20 guys, and they, felt, and they, and they wound up feeding 5,000, and they got it left over. Why? Because he is the bread of life. Because he is God. Uh, that's how this whole thing starts out in chapter 6. Uh, to get to 635, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. You get down to verse 48. He comes back to it again. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Look at 51. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then he goes on and he says in 54, in 53, truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. And I'm sure they're going, what is this about? Well, it wasn't clear at the time, but now we know exactly what he's talking about, because whenever we uh, gather around the Lord's table and we take communion, what do we do? We are remembering what Jesus said when he said at that last supper, he took a piece of bread and he said, this is my what? This is my body. Does it mean it's his literal body? No, it's not his literal body. It's like when he said, um, I am the vine. Does it mean Jesus is a literal vine? No, he's using a metaphor. He takes the bread. This is my body. You take the cup. You drink the cup. Why? This, this is the cup of the new covenant of my blood without the shedding of blood. What is communion? We're remembering what Jesus did on the cross in giving up his body, which was broken, shedding his blood for my sin, because see, he is the bread of life. He is the provider of life, not only of my daily physical life, but of my spiritual life forever. When he showed up, and Lazarus was dead. He had stayed away on purpose. He had delayed his travels on purpose so that no one could ever say that Lazarus was not dead. He showed up, and the concern was that the body was smelling. And his two sisters say to him, Lord, if you had have been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus said, he who believes in me, even though he die, yet shall he, what? live because I am the bread of life 
all life, daily life, physical life, eternal life. I own life. I invented life. In him was life. I am the way, the truth, and I am the life. He's life. This is Christ. Huh. This is wild stuff, isn't it? So what are we going to study this fall? Um, in one word, uh, here's what, here, here's what I, I'm going to call this study. I'm going to call it manna. Just manna. M-A-N-N-A. Uh, why, why, why are we going to study manna? Well, he mentions in John 6, he mentions manna. In John 6.49, he says, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. Flip over, if you would, to uh, 1 Corinthians 10. What's that? Figuring out that Bible better. I'm getting it down now, yeah. Starting to fall into place. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. What's this about? Well, you remember when they came out of Egypt. Um, if you read Exodus 13, you read Exodus 14. They come out of Egypt. They've been slaves for 400 years. And uh, finally, after Moses shows up with Aaron, says to Pharaoh, let him go. Pharaoh won't do it. He has to do the ten plagues. God does show his power. Uh, they finally let him go. After all, the firstborn or or finally died, Pharaoh relents. So they're headed off to the promised land. Uh, God doesn't have them take the direct route up the Mediterranean, but he has them go kind of in an unusual fashion down towards the Red Sea where they camp. This is Exodus 13 and 14. And this is where the events of the Red Sea happen. And if you read the events carefully, you'll see that as they were there at the Red Sea, God directed them to camp there, they get the kids to bed, and uh, that was quite a night. It was quite a night, because for 400 years, they'd been slaves. And they got the kids in bed, and they're camped at this beautiful site. And um, they're online checking their Schwab accounts, <laughs> which is interesting, because they never had any money in their whole lives, because they were slaves. But as they were leaving... The Egyptians paid them to leave. They had nothing. I mean, they had nothing. And they plundered the Egyptians. They're taking off their Rolexes. They're getting them stock certificates. They're transferring money. You know, they're doing all kinds of stuff. And they're just loading on these people who were slaves. Just get out of here. So they got the kids in bed. They're camped out. And if you read the passage carefully, as, and, and, and they're enjoying, they've never had this kind of prosperity in their life. And as they are enjoying, they just can't assimilate all that God has done. As they are doing that, God begins to stir up the heart of Pharaoh. God does. And it's like Pharaoh says, what, what the heck have I done? These people, I let them go. They're our economic engine. And he gets a chariot and he goes after them. You know the story. You saw the movie. Right? <laughs> and he goes after them. And there's no way of escape. Because you got Pharaoh's army behind you, you got the Red Sea in front of you, you got mountains on both sides. There is no way out. And the people call out in desperation. And what does God do? He opens the Red Sea. That's what this is about. I do not want you to, 1 Corinthians 10, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers are all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. A cloud was leading them. Um, there was a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Say, what do you mean they were baptized in the Moses? Well, he was the leader. That, that, that's where the confirmation, if you will, they were put under the leadership of Moses as they were placed into Moses as they followed the cloud and went into the sea. Um, and I mentioned this before when we looked at that passage in depth a number of years ago. But there was a, an old scholar, uh, Macintosh. Was it C.H. Macintosh or C.K. Macintosh? I can't remember. But he had a theory about the Red Sea crossing. 
And you know what his theory was? His theory was, and here's what we tend to think. We think that God would open that, God opened that Red Sea. He just opened it from one shore all the way to the other shore. And they could see way across, they could see the sign for Denny's way on the other side or whatever was over there and the Exxon and all that. You see, he just opened it up. But McIntosh said that he believed that God didn't just immediately open the entire pathway, but God opened the pathway as they walked in. And God continued to open it. And the reason he said he believed that was that we walk not by sight, but by what? Faith. Faith. Interesting. There was no escape, and God made a way of escape. Okay, next verse. You guys still with me? Verse 3. And all ate the same spiritual food. Manna. Because if you know the story, God brings them through. And then what happened is, it wasn't that far to the promised land. They should have gone in there within a matter of weeks to go north. God said, I'm going to give you the, you know, the promised land. The ites are living in the land. The Canaanites, Perizzites, Amorites, all the ites, they're up there. And they were very powerful people, technologically advanced. They had iron chariots. People of Israel had nothing. Okay. But what happened was, you remember the story in Numbers 13, they sent out a reconnaissance mission. Uh, they took a man from each tribe. It says each man was a leader. And they went and checked out the land. They came back and said, it's unbelievable. It's a land of milk and honey. They brought back a cluster of grapes. It took two guys to carry the grapes. It's an incredible land. But the ites are there, and there are giants in the land. You remember all this. And what happened was that because 10 of the 12 spies refused to believe that God could deliver them from the giants. Now, two guys stood up and said, wait a minute, you're out of your minds. God can deliver us. Look what he just did for us. Look at the 10 plagues. He got us through the, he just got us through the Red Sea. You think God can't take those guys? But see, they didn't learn the lessons. By the way, the two guys who stood up and said, God will fight for us, what were their names? Joshua and Caleb. We name our kids after them to this day. The other 10 guys, what were their names? We don't know. We don't care. But because of the unbelief of the 10, they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. So for 40 years, they're going to wander in the wilderness, 2 million men, women, and children. They're going to wander in a desert. Okay, now here's where it gets interesting. 2 million people. That's a lot of people to take care of. That's a lot of people. That's, you, you, that, you know what? You got to have some supply lines to take care of two million people in a desert to feed them, to get them water in a desert, to give them food in a desert. And God says, and, and by the way, after 40 years, when they went into the promised land, you get in the book of Joshua, the manna stopped. You say, what's manna? It's how God fed them when all supply lines were cut off. There are times in the Christian life, they're not normal times, but there will be a season, maybe once or twice in your life, maybe more, I don't know, but there will be a season when the normal supply lines, when the normal cash flow lines in your life will dry up and will be cut off, and what will happen is you will have a season where you see no possible way for your daily sustenance to be met because all supply lines are cut off. And this is when God comes through with manna. So in the morning they'd wake up and there'd be manna. And at night there would be manna. Uh, if you took too much, it would spoil. If you didn't take enough, it would expand. God oversaw it. This would happen for six days, on the sixth day, you would take double because on the Sabbath there would be no manna, but when you took double, it wouldn't spoil because it was a supernatural provision of Almighty God. And they lived this way for 40 years. All right, here's where I'm going. Let's come up for air here for a minute. Um, 
this was a uh, the season of the season in the wilderness was a a season that God marked. It had a beginning, it had a middle, and it had an end. It was a chapter of the history of these people. Uh, history is fascinating to study. It was Hegel who said, history teaches us that men never learn from history. We must learn from history. Would you look at verse 6? Um, Actually, I, I didn't do four. Let's get four. Uh, they all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. Spiritual drink. Spiritual food. In other words, the provision of Christ, who is, who is the food of life, who is the bread of life, who is the water of life. Uh, they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. It's very clear. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. For they were laid low in the wilderness. Why? Because instead of worshiping the God who was providing, they kept going after their idols and making false gods. They would come up with their own gods out of their own hearts. Okay. And they wouldn't give glory to the one true God. Although they saw him working miraculously in their lives on a daily basis. Now watch this. This is where Hegel is right. History teaches us men never learn from history. Look at verse 6. Now these happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Look at verse 11. Now these things happen to them as an example. In other words, learn from the history. Learn from the story. There's a reason this is in the Old Testament. This is a reason this historically happened. There's a reason I showed my provision to these people of Israel because I have people in this day and this age and I am their rock and I am their bread and I am their water and I am the same God. I am the God who led them. I am the God who's going to lead you. And as I led them, read and see how I led them in a time of great crisis. Is this making sense? It was written for our instruction. I think you would agree with me, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, that what has happened uh, to us in this nation and what's happening around the world is that there has been a shift. There has been a change. First um, Chronicles 12.32 says that the men of Issachar, one of the tribes of Israel, the men of Issachar were men Two things, who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. So the men of Issachar brought two things to the table. Number one, they understood the times. That means the men of Issachar had discernment about what was going on in the times in which they lived. You know, so often we look back and, man, we remember the good old days. Nothing wrong with that. But... Uh, you, you know, you can appreciate it and look at home movies and all that's kind of fun. But don't spend too much time there because we're living in today and this is reality. We need to have, as husbands, fathers, grandfathers, as single guys, you see, who God has called, and you're by yourself and maybe you're a little bit lonely, but keep tracking, keep looking for that godly girl. You just need one. If you needed 15, you'd be in trouble. But just look for one. Um... We're, we're men. We're at different stages of life, you see. What we need to do is be men of Issachar about what's going on in this time. The men of Issachar understood the times. Well, if you look at our times, you're, especially if you look at our times through the lens of the Bible, what do you see? You see, a, uh, you see the foundations being destroyed. Psalm 11. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, what the righteous do is keep their eyes on the rock. They keep their eyes on Jesus. That's what the righteous do. God has made covenant promises to his people that he has made to nobody else. And it's all grace. Uh, the foundations are being destroyed. Things are not getting better and better. Things are getting worse and worse. Are they not? And you know they are. You look on every front and they're getting worse and worse. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but it's reality, and you know it's true. 
Uh, it, uh, you look at every level of life and every aspect of life, and it has fundamentally changed. Uh, you can go back and you can look into the 60s, you can look at 1968, and that was a marker, and our country changed. There was, a, there was an earthquake in 68, and the aftershocks are still being felt, and the thing about aftershocks or an earthquake is the aftershocks diminish, but the earthquake that happened in 68, the aftershocks are not diminishing, they're getting stronger because the kids that were demonstrating and doing all of this, they're now old guys. They used to have long hair, now they don't have any hair. They used to have teeth, now they put in their teeth, but they're in positions of power and influence, and they still believe the same. They look different, but they still believe the same things. And they're not in submission to God. And they're at every level. Every level. And God put them there. And the crisis we're in, God governs the crisis. He oversees the crisis because he is sovereign over all of the world and all things that happen. Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 103, his throne is in the heaven and his sovereignty rules over all. I think every time I teach, I quote those verses. Because if you don't know those verses, you will have no peace in your life. Jesus said things would get worse and worse. Read Matthew 24. Now, are they going to fall apart all at once and we're just going it's, it's to... We see a gradual decline, but what's interesting is it's been picking up speed. Uh, Russell Moore uh, is a brilliant young theologian. Uh, he's been at Southern Seminary in Louisville for a number of years. He just became the uh, new president of the Southern Baptist Convention. They have a, what they call the Office of Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Um, Richard Land had, had been doing this for 25 years. Now Russell Moore has it. And he's out there and he's, uh, he's making some waves. Sharp young guy. Um, Wall Street Journal interviewed him last week. Um, Russell Moore said the Bible Belt is collapsing. And it is kind of the less vestige of the, the old uh, Christianity and the culture. I remember when we moved to Texas, I remember the first high school football game I went to, and uh, they're getting ready for kickoff, and would you all stand, oh, the national anthem, but before they did the national anthem, they had some local pastor pray. I thought, where, where, where am I? I obviously am not in California. They would have carted that pastor off and put him in the, in the, in the hooskow. But this was Texas, you know. And they would do that in Alabama, and they'd do it, and, you know, you know what I mean. It's a Bible Belt. They're still hanging around. They still have some certain, you know, it's a little bit different. But as Russell Moore says, the Bible Belt's collapsing. And it is. Uh, and they ask why. And Russell Moore said, because we are no longer the moral majority, things have shifted. Moore says, uh, we are now a prophetic minority. And he's absolutely right. Things have changed. Things have shifted on every front. In regard to the government, uh, we've had a tremendous season. We've had a tremendous supply. Have we not? We look back over our life, and you know what we've had? We've breathed the air of liberty in this country. We have had a free-flowing supply of religious liberty. We have had a free-flowing su supply of free speech. Have you noticed that it's drying up? You know it. You know it. You see it. You think about it. You think about your kids and their future, and you think about your grandkids and their future. And you're, you're perceptive because you're just being a man of Issachar. You understand the times, and you see it. You see it. By the way, the second thing about the men of Issachar, they understood the times and they knew what Israel should do. See, they had to have vision. In these times, which are different than 40 years ago or even 20 years ago or even 10 years ago, what am I supposed to do? Well, you know, we, you know guys, what we need to be? We need to be a prophetic minority. And what does that mean? You live out the truth that you believe and apply it to your daily life and follow Christ and put it into practice. That's what it means. Moore says, by prophetic minority, he means that Christians must return to the days when they were a moral example and vanguard, defenders of belief in a larger unbelieving culture. That's what's happened. 
we're in primarily an unbelieving culture. We're not the majority if we ever, you know, you could make a case was the majority ever moral. Alan Bloom in his book, a Jewish scholar at University of Chicago, about 20 years ago in his book, The Closing of the American Mind, he talked about the greatness of America. Why was this country so great? What, what was the secret? And you know what he said? He said, well, the secret was you'd walk into an average home in America and every home had a Bible. Now, they may not be Christians, but they had a Bible. And that Bible was in a prominent place on the bookshelf. Uh, there was a family Bible. It might be big. Perhaps it was never opened, but they had a Bible. And that Bible represented their values. It represented their virtues. It represented their belief system. And they may not have had a personal relationship with the living Lord. And I'm, I'm just adding this in now. But there was a history where the grandparents knew Christ or uh, the great-grandparents or the parents. And maybe, you know, after three or four generations, uh, you, you have children who tend to slide and they tend to leave their first love. This is what happens. But many people in America had uh, spiritual capital, just as you get an inheritance from grandparents, parents. Uh, many people who didn't know the Lord had a spiritual inheritance. They had capital in their account. And in certain areas of their life, they lived by Christian values, even, in, even though they didn't know the living Christ. So they had a Bible. But that's all changed. Moore says, uh, great article, Moore says, he is a long-term optimist, but a short-term pessimist. I love that. Is he all freaked out? No, we don't need to be either. We just need to know, hey, we're in a stretch here. And, and here's my point. Here's my point in all of this. And if you... Um, you got to know what's going on around you guys. If you go to Al Mohler's website, M-O-H-L-E-R, Al Mohler, uh, he's worth reading, president of Southern Seminary. Uh, he has an article from August 26. There was a court case uh, that happened in New Mexico recently that should send chills up our spine because there was a, a, a Christian couple. They uh, have a photography business. They were asked to... Uh, give their services at a wedding between a same-sex couple. They didn't feel in conscience that they could do it in good conscience. They were sued. Um, the uh, New Mexico Supreme Court ruled against them 6-0. Um, Moeller says, the most amazing language found in the decision of the New Mexico court is not in the main opinion but in the especially concurring opinion of Judge Richard C. Boson. And basically, Boson acknowledges that he concurred with the decision against them, but he seemed to understand the plight of this couple. Uh, their last name was Huguenin. Uh, uh, I quote from Moeller, who was quoting uh, Justice Boson. As devout practicing Christians, they believe as a matter of faith that certain commands of the Bible are not left open to secular interpretation. They are meant to be obeyed. Among these commands, according to the Huguenins, is an injunction against same-sex marriage. On the record before us, no one has questioned the Huguenins' devoutness or their sincerity. Their religious convictions deserve our respect. In the words of their legal counsel, the Huguenins believe that creating photographs telling the story of that event would express a message contrary to their sincerely held beliefs and that in so doing they would disobey God. Uh, if honoring same-sex marriage would sow conflict with their fundamental religious tenets, how then, they ask, can the state of New Mexico compel them to disobey God in this case? How indeed? And then he goes on to say, here's how the state of New Mexico can do it. Boson goes on. At, at his heart, this case, this case teaches that at some point in our lives, all of us must compromise if only a little, to accommodate the contrasting values of others. He goes on and says, it's part of the glue that holds us together as a nation, the tolerance that lubricates the moving parts of us as a people. The compromise, just as Boston wrote, is just a fact of American life. In short, I would say to the Huguenins, with the utmost respect, it is the price 
of citizenship. We've entered a new time, guys. Have we not? We've entered a new time. Now, you know what? <laughs> he whose mind is stayed on thee shall live in perfect peace. Once again, you've got to take a step back. Where did all this come from? Who, 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 who is orchestrating all this? Let's go to Job 12. Say, didn't you just quote Job 12? Last Sunday or the Sunday before? Yeah? Well, let's quote it again. I mean, did you take Advil 14 days ago? Well, you might need to take it tonight. Sometimes you just keep take, going back to the medicine chest. You know what I mean? So let's look at Job 12, and let's remind ourselves of some things here. Um, Uh, there, there is calamity in his life. Uh, if you look at verse 5, you know what's happened to Job. Um, verse 9, who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? And whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind? Um, look at verse 16. With him, with God, are strength and sound wisdom. Now watch this. This is wild. The misled and the misleader belong to him. <laughs> I love that. <coughs> Those who are taking us down a wrong direction, you know what? They belong to him. He owns them. He runs them. Oh, yeah. So, well, I'm not sure that text says that. Oh, keep reading. Just keep reading. Look at verse 17. He makes counselors walk barefoot. Uh, he must be referring to Maui or something. I'm not sure what he means. Another way, he makes counselors walk barefoot, naked, foolish. Oh, and it's a little more clear the next phrase, and makes fools of judges. Uh, look at verse 20. He deprives the trusted ones of speech and takes away the discernment of elders. He pours contempt on nobles. Look at 23. He makes the nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges the nations, then leads them away. Watch this. He deprives of intelligence the chiefs of the earth's people. <laughs> you say, how can they do this? How? Well, well, they have no intelligence. You say, this is unbelievably foolish. Well, yes, it is. Where did it come from? Him. He deprives of intelligence the chiefs of the earth's people. He makes them wander in a pathless waste. They grope in darkness with no light. He makes them stagger like a drunken man. He has orchestrated it because they have denied that he's there. Read Romans 1. And in the midst of us, we're trying to live our lives. <laughs> Are we not? Yeah. Okay, let's go back. So, okay, uh, let, me just, let me just summarize here for a minute. So, so why are we going to study manna? We're going to study manna because um, the normal supply lines that we have had for a long time as Christians in this country are drying up and are being taken away. Manna is more than just physical sustenance, although it is physical sustenance. It's your, it's, Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day, he said, give us this day our, what? Our daily bread. So the daily bread that we enjoy and that we have, we think, he's, he's the source of it. And we don't ever stop and think about it, most of us, but if you stop and think, and you really reason it back, and you go back to first causes, uh, that's where it comes from. It comes from him. And he declares that throughout the scripture. Um, but manna is not just the physical pro provision of God. Manna is the provision of God in 
any area of life, watch this, at the right time. Because he's the God of all of life. He owns life. He is life. He gave you life. You break down your life, uh, there's a physical side. You've got to have physical sustenance. You've got to have food and water. Your kids are about to have it. Uh, but it's just not physical. There's a spiritual side. There is a social side. We are built by God to be relational people. No man is an island. No man. Uh, you got to have other people in your life. You need other people in your life. But because we're flawed, we get messed up in our relationships. And you see, what happens is sometimes we get desperate in our marriages, and we get desperate with our kids, and we get desperate in these business relationships. And what do you need? You need help. You need a provision of Christ to keep you alive in, in your relationships because they're drying up and they're breaking up and things, and, and we, need, we need help. The manna, manna was all about timing. All about timing. Um, and we see the man of God, just not in our day-to-day -day physical provision, but we see the man of God, we see it in our relationships, you see the man of God in your careers. You stop, some of you guys that are older, and you look back over your life, and you think about when you were a young guy getting started, you'll see the hand of God who helped you get started in your work. Somebody came along, and you're just some average guy. I mean, you're just some guy. Someone came along, some older guy came along, and for some reason, he liked you, and... and you had favor with him, and he helped you. He mentored you. He did something for you, really without much... You, there's really no explanation except that he came along at the right time, and as a result, you were blessed. Yeah. I was talking to a friend recently. He was telling me the story about how he got into graduate school. Really an amazing story, because he had applied and applied, and it wasn't working, and... Uh, he was at a stage of life where most guys don't apply, uh, didn't have the best grades for whatever reason, you know. Um, he's trying to get in. And uh, he's applying to a bunch of different schools, and, uh, you know, you can do it, and it's the same application for everybody, and there were 20 schools, and he had, you know, and as they were getting ready to send it off, his wife said, you got all 20? He goes, well, I didn't get this one. Well, it would just be another $15 check. Why don't you do this one? Well, okay. And then he sent it off and wasn't even going to do that one. But then later needed to call up there and make sure they had received it. And at his lunch hour, called, figured he'd get a secretary. The phone rang and rang and rang and rang. And he thought he almost hung up. And then this gentleman picks it up and he says, this is Dean such and such. He didn't get the secretary, he got the dean. The dean was in there and he heard the phone ring and the dean picks it up. And just by chance, <laughs> he winds up talking to the dean for an hour. And just by chance, he winds up, because of the conversation, that's where he went to school. And just by chance, he looks back where he is today and he sees that God providentially gave him favor with a phone call on a day when the secretary was gone. The dean who never picks up that phone picked it up. That's manna. That's the provision, the perfect timing provision of God with his career, with his work. It's in every area of your life. And here's what I'm saying. We're entering a stretch that's going to be challenging. We're entering a stretch where the normal supply lines we've had are going to wither, but we don't have to fear <laughs> because of who our God is. Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond anything you could ever ask, watch this, or think. That's our God. Let's go back to... Let's go back to the New Testament. I'll figure it out as we go. I, I think we're going to... Uh, no, we're going to... Uh, <laughs> Sorry, we're going back to 1 Corinthians 10. I want to show you something. Can I ask you something? Is this making any sense at all? Okay, all right. Because, you see, the last thing we need to do 
what he wants to rule and reign in our hearts is in the midst of all this change. He doesn't want despair. He doesn't want depression. He doesn't want fear to rule and reign, although that's the natural thing. But we've got to look at him. And we, when we look at him and we're reminded of who he is and his greatness and that he has a plan. What's happening right now? See, we're living at this scope of history, okay? And then there's a larger thing. God's doing all these things. There is a, and how many times have I said this here? There is a prophetic plan for the ages from Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right out of the blocks, we say, oh, actually, he didn't do that. Well, actually, he did do it. He did. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. He did do it. And he's taken it somewhere. And you read all the way through and you get to Revelation 22. And it's really interesting in Revelation because as Jesus said in Matthew 24, there's going to be a period. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. And maybe we're kind of entering into that period a little bit. But you don't want to get yourself all worried up and, you know, sick to your stomach and all that. Because, you see, that's just a piece of what he has planned. And there is a prophetic timetable. And we are on schedule to the nanosecond. His prophetic timetable is more exact than an atomic clock. He's running it. He rules it. He raises them up. He sets them down. He has a purpose for history. He's moving this. It's a plan of God that no one can thwart. And in the middle of it, as it gets a little bit more frightening, he's got his eye on his people. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness. We're not the majority, we're the minority, but we're going to live prophetically and show our kids and our grandkids how a man of God lives in hard times. That's what we're going to do. And he'll give us the strength. He says, fear not, fear not, I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you. What's coming? Where are they going to go? Fear not, I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you. I am your God. I will help you. I will hold you with my righty, mighty right hand. That's the word of God. We don't fear men. We fear God. Right? I'm trying to get to uh, 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, 10. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 10. Yeah, yeah, it's John 6, 1 Corinthians 10. Okay, now, remember we were in verse 11? Now, these things happened to them as an example. They were written for our instruction. So what's the lesson that they had in the wilderness? That when the normal supply lines are cut off, it doesn't matter what the supply is when they're cut off, God makes a way where there is no way. <laughs> I think I said... Uh, I preached for Chuck the last couple Sundays here. One of the Sundays I, I talked about uh, we all want our finances and our lives to be... Uh, we, we want Costco lives and we want Costco finances. You ever been to Costco? What a place. I mean, you want to wanna go to Disneyland and you want to go to Costco. They're both kind of unreal. Uh, they're both kind of magic kingdoms. Because everything in the world you could possibly want is at Costco. Uh, they say you save money there. I've never saved a dime at Costco in my whole life. <laughs> because whatever I buy, they shrink wrap 28 of them. And I got enough of them until uh, the millennium to get through. But nevertheless, it's quite a place. You know what I'm talking about. When we were in Hawaii this summer, we went to the Costco. There's one at the airport in Maui. There's one at the airport in Honolulu. The one in Honolulu, uh, the Honolulu Costco does more business than any other Costco in the world because of the cost of living in Hawaii. One out of four Hawaiians shop at Costco. I'm wondering why four out of four don't shop at Costco. You can't eat breakfast in Honolulu for less than 25 bucks. It's insane over there. That's why Costco, oh by the way, Costco is an amazing story. We walked in, and it's just like the Costco around here. They got stuff everywhere, just everywhere. But what's interesting is, when I, I got on the website and read about it, the Honolulu Costco, they empty that store every 14 days. That store has to be resupplied every 14 days. See, even Costco runs out. 
even Costco. You see, because we tend to think in our head, it's always there. It's not always there. Someone's got to resupply that. Man, that's, but I'd like to have a Costco life. I'd like to have Costco finance. I'd like to have my whole life Costco. Well, see, a lot of us, what happens when we enter a new phase, when you get into this manna period, you know what happens? You don't have Costco finances. You got mini fridge college dorm room finances. <laughs> you don't have a fridge. You don't have a regular fridge. You get a mini fridge. And you got like three eggs in there. You got a piece of cheese that was there from your freshman year. <laughs> you got a little chicken. You get, I mean, you know, a quart of milk, some half and half that's going bad. There's just not much in there. And you open it up and you go, gosh, how am I going to make it this week? Because I'm running out and that's got to be resupplied. And you know, the fact of the matter is, it really doesn't matter if you got Costco life Costco finances or mini fridge life or mini fridge finances, at some point you got to be resupplied. And you better know the bread of life. And you better know the one that if you come to him, you'll never hunger. And if you believe in him, you'll never thirst. Because he's the God of the universe. Learn from what happened with them. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, look at verse 12. Therefore let him who... I'm in 12 of 1 Corinthians 10. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Gosh, what if things get harder and harder? What if things get tougher and tougher? They will. Well, what am I going to do? You're going to live off manna. Yeah, but what if something happens to me and I get in a, a case or I get in a lawsuit and I'm, what am I going to say? Well, Jesus said to his men, he said, don't worry about what you're going to say when they pull you up before the cancel. Watch this. It shall be given to you in that hour, what you will say. That's manna. Don't worry, don't freak about what you're going to say six months because you don't need it six months out, but you need it when you get there, and when you need it, it'll be there. That's manna. It's all about timing. Um, it's in every area of life. Every area of life. Um, he'll give you a word of wisdom in a moment of crisis that has never entered your mind before its manna. Go to uh, Hebrews 4, if you would. Uh, Hebrews 4, 16. This is great. See, see, when there's, a, and, and, and I didn't say much in that other verse, but when there's, a, when there's a temptation, when there's a trial, when you are locked in like the Red Sea, and, and there's no way of escape. You know what? i got to hit this. Keep your, keep your hand there. I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'm really trying to do better this year on my time and pace myself. And I've already failed drastically. <laughs> but it was a good idea. Uh, just keep your finger there. Go back to 1 Corinthians 10. Let me show you something. Let me show you something. Because this is, this is too precious to miss. Uh, 13. See, see, a lot of times we worry about the future. And oh my gosh, what if something comes and I can't handle it? Okay. Well, God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted. Watch this. Beyond what you are able. See, that's our fear. And I may not be, be able to handle what's coming. I mean, I, I, so don't worry about it. Don't think too much ahead here, guys. Don't, don't, get, don't get trying in the future trying to anticipate. What if God asked me to do this and this? Forget that. You know what God's going to do. Jesus may come back tonight. Wouldn't that be good? I vote for that. But he's not asking for a vote. He's already got that fixed. Okay. Now watch this. 
God is faithful, will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Watch this. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also. See, there was no escape out of the Red Sea. What did he do? He made a way where there was no way. (laughs) This is what he does. And not only does he make a way where there is no way, but he does it at the right time. At the right time. So now we go to Hebrews 4, verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that, watch this, we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you read that just literally out of the original text, you can go like this, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace uh, as a well-timed, watch this, as a well-timed help. A well-timed help. You need mercy, but you need it at the right time. God is all about timing. He's all about timing. Um, Psalm 31, watch this. My times are in your hands. My times. From the womb to the tomb, he's got you. He's your master. He's your Lord. He's your Savior. He's your creator. It's appointed for a man to die, and then comes judgment. As you sit here, the time of your death has already been fixed, just as the time of your conception and the time of your birth was fixed before the foundations of the world. The time of your death is already set. Nothing you can do to change it. That shouldn't scare you. You ought to thank God for it because you can't die till your work is done. The manna will always be there. You're not in this by yourself. You've got a Savior. His name is Jesus. He's the bread of life. He, take, he gives you what you need in every level of life, in every aspect of life, at the moment when you need it. And sometimes you think, I don't think I can go another day, but he'll give you new strength as his mercy is new every morning. And, 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 and what he does, he delivers, he delivers at the right time. At the right time, the Bible says, Christ died for the ungodly. He could have died at any time, but he died at the right time. Okay. If you guys were in this study last year, I mentioned to you, about a year ago, May, I was in bad shape. I was exhausted. I was overweight. I was overworked. I was beyond burnout. I hit a wall in May, and I, and I told you some of the story. And it, it was like ministry. I, I, and I'll tell you something. I knew my best days were behind me. I've had a pretty good run. I, I've had God do things for me that I never in my life imagined. And Mary knew this, and I told her, I said, listen, I, I mean, listen, I, I'm just telling you, I've had a good run. But uh, um, I really believe my best days were behind me. And she didn't believe that. But I, I really did believe it. And part of the reason I believed it, and, and I told you about this story about all these guys emailing us, calling us constantly. How come, Steve, we can't get your stuff online? I told you this story. I don't mean to bore you with this stuff. You remember Paul Harvey and the rest of the story? Well, I told you the story. But see, over the summer, I got the rest of the story. (laughs) And I just want to tell you to kind of encourage you because 15 months ago, I pretty much thought I was done. And I went in to see the got the scan on my heart and all that, and say, hey, listen, you better quit messing around. You better drop some weight. Because if you don't, you're, you're heading for a disaster. Okay. And part of my problem was I was traveling too much. Why was I traveling too much? Because I don't raise funds. I don't ask guys to give to our ministry. I haven't done that for years. Lord, if you want me doing it, you'll do it. But what happened is we hit a sustained drought, and here's what was happening. I was running out of gas. And I knew in my heart of hearts I couldn't keep doing what I'm doing. And all these guys are saying, hey, Steve, how can we can't get your stuff online? And my brother-in-law is saying, Steve, it would be a good stewardship. You wouldn't have to travel as much, and it just makes sense. And I know, but I don't have the money to do it. I don't have the personnel. I don't know how to do it. 
I don't raise money. How the, and I just felt trapped. I felt absolutely trapped. I saw no way out. And I had that day where I walked into the closet. I was changing clothes, and I put my head down, and I wept, and I said, if you don't help me, I'm going to die. And there is no hype there. There is no exaggeration. I, I really thought I was going to, I just thought I was going to die like my brother did 12 years ago. And then the next day, God started moving. He started moving. And I told you about those two guys on the sidewalk after the noon study. Hey, Steve, how come I can't get your stuff online? And I hit the guy in the mouth. I felt bad about it. <laughs> but I was so frustrated, I just decked the sucker. And when I helped him up, asked his forgiveness. No, I didn't. But I, was, I thought, oh, God, here we go again. Here we go again. And I asked God that day before, would you, would you s stop the emails? Because I can't do this. I can't make this happen. I don't know how to multitask. I don't know how to organize. I'm just doing what I'm doing. But I can't make this happen. And I felt like you led me not to ask for funds. And I've tried to be faithful to that. But I got, and I was just, you know, you got to, you just pour it out to him. He's your father. He's your, he's your, he's your father. Just pour it out. He can take it. And I told you about the guy standing there in the t-shirt and the cutoffs and the flip-flops. And I didn't know his name. He goes, hey, Steve. Is this the last week for Bible study? Yeah, we do it next week, summer break. What am I going to do? I don't know. How am I going to survive? I don't know how you're going to survive. I'm trying to survive. Who cares about you? I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> and he's there with his buddy. And he goes, no. He goes, I travel to Europe all the time. How come I can't get your stuff online? Oh, gosh. And I said, well. And he said, oh, I bet you... He said, You'd, you're not going to do it. You'd have to hire somebody. And to hire somebody, you have to have funds, right? And I go, yeah, and I really don't. So how much do you think that would be? Well, I'd ask my brother-in-law that when we were talking the day before, and he'd helped. Me. Well, my brother-in-law has done it. He said about 50000 He said 50000 And his friend said, it could be more. And I said, yeah. He said, okay. I, I, I said, I'm sorry? He said, okay. You got it. And, and I said, I'm, so, I'm sorry, could you tell me your name? <laughs> That's a true story. And, and four days later, we had the check. And then God did all this stuff. We hired a guy. He got it all going. We got a part-time guy. We don't pay him much, but he's one of those young guys that's a genius, and he does all this. And all this stuff has been edited and downloaded and upchucked and all the stuff they do. I don't even know what they do. I don't even care what they do. And now we got an online presence. And then just as we're in our Bible study, this other new platform that's coming in, and I don't have time to tell you about all this, but it comes out of the blue. It's uh, the largest Christian bookstore chain in the country. Is, has put $3 million into getting an online presence. And they approached the state. Do you have, is your stuff, yeah, we just got it online. And, oh, well, let us, can we do, and what it's going to do, because all this work has been done, and this guy stepped up, uh, suddenly... Uh, it's going to increase at least fivefold this year from what we've already seen happen. Fivefold. And we went from zip to 40,000 hits a month. I'm not saying this for any other reason except to give glory to God, to encourage some of you guys. Okay? And on that day, I thought I was going to die. Mary and I were praying that day. And if I could sketch out what my life would look like, I would have cut my travel in half because I couldn't keep it up. I was going out 30 weekends a year. I just couldn't keep doing it and doing this and writing books. I just couldn't do it. I was out of gas. I wasn't 40 anymore. But there was no way to cut it in half because the income comes off speaking and how am I going to... And then out of the blue, God puts it on the hearts of one guy and then another guy and they come out of nowhere and they say, hey, God's put it on us our heart. Uh, we'd like to... How can we help? And we want to just... And can I tell you what's going on right now? Not only do we have that online thing, but I looked at my schedule. You know what's happening? My speaking's been cut in half. And I was able this summer to rest and, and be refreshed in a way I've never... I can't remember... I can't remember in 30 years being this refreshed and this rested. Oh, and just before I left... After that, one group came along and said, you know, this will five times, okay. And it's all real. It's, it's happening. One of my friends, Gary Rosberg, said, hey, Steve, 
you ought to get on this platform, but you got to get by invitation. I've talked with them because your stuff needs to be on that because that has much more exposure. And I said, you know, I don't, hey, hey, let's just put a lid on this for a while. And he had talked to me six months ago, and I said, let's just wait, and let's see how this goes. And he said, okay. And then he circled back around with me in June, and he said, well, I, you, explore this. And I said, okay, but I'm going to go take a break and come back. And I did. And I looked at it, and I got the thing. And th this, this would be beyond belief in terms of exposure. Um, but there was a cost to it. And I looked at it, and I said, we can't afford it. We don't have that. And uh, I sat on it for a month, and then... I got an email from, from the guy, and he said, is this something you want to pursue? And I had to get back to him the next day, and I thought, well, I'll email him the next day and tell him, no, it's dead. And I'm watching the Rangers game, and I, my email beeps on my phone, and this guy, hey, Steve, how you doing? Good to see you. Can you speak over here in three weeks? I don't think you can, but if you can't, no, I can't. Oh, well, it's good to see you. You know, I hadn't seen this guy. By the way, Steve, let me know if uh, anything's going on. You got any projects? Let me know. Would you call me and let me know, please? I'd like to know what's going on. And I sat on that for about 24 hours. And Mary said, listen, if someone asks if you have a project, I want you to promise me you'll at least tell them. Because you're not asking them, they're, they're asking. I said, okay. So I sent this guy an email back. Well, actually, we got a little project, you know, maybe, you know, not. He writes me back the next morning. He said, this is very timely that you would send this email. <laughs> because in our investment strategy in our foundation, I didn't even know the guy had a foundation. We've been praying, and I have had a sense from God that the strategy I've been using, because things are changing in this country, He wants me to change my strategy and invest in the kingdom in a more aggressive way. And may I say to you, I don't know what your project did, is, but I'm in. And that project, and he said, can you send me something? I sent him a four-page little thing and a budget that they sent me through 2014. It was about $50,000. We're on the phone that afternoon. He said, oh, what about this? And I said, yeah, yeah, and okay. He goes, he goes, all right, I'll cover it. Okay. Somebody said okay again. <laughs> now, can I tell you why I say this? You know, you know, the details right now are not important. I want to say this to you. I don't care what's going on in the world. I don't care how things are closing in, and I don't care what your perspective is about where you are in life. You may think you're finished. You may think you've run your course. But if God has a work for you to do, and you see no possible way that it can get done, as Ray Steadman used to say, resurrection power always works best in a graveyard. <laughs> God loves to take dead things and resurrect them, and He gets the glory. I don't care where you are, the arm of the Lord is not too short that he cannot save you where you are. It's manna. And he gets the glory. We bow before you, Father, and thank you for your greatness. We are amazed by you. There are stories of providence in this room. I'm just telling mine. There are stories in here that would amaze us, and we give you glory for every one of them. The guys who were discouraged as I was Put hope in their hearts. Put hope in their hearts. <laughs> because eye has not seen and ear has not heard what God has prepared for those who love him. We believe in Jesus and his power and his deliverance. In his name we pray. Amen.